Welcome to Left Out, reality-based radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. Left Out examines the news and uh, current events from the point of view left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Jay Thurber. Listeners are welcome to call us anytime during the program at uh, 412-268-9728-268-WRCT, or you're welcome also to send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info, no punctuation there, and we'll be monitoring electronic mail during during the show. Uh, one announcement today, as usual, I want to remind our listeners to listen to Democracy Now! every morning uh, at 8 a.m. on broadcast on WRCT here at 88.3 FM. Uh, Democracy Now! is a specific radio network uh, news program hosted by Amy Goodman, uh, who are talking about the current events from also from a, uh, from a perspective left out by the mainstream media. One more announcement. I just want to encourage our listeners to also check out mm. the uh, the other public affairs offerings on WRCT, such as um, Rust Belt Radio, which is on Mondays at 6 o'clock. Excellent program. Excellent I was program. listening to their yesterday rerun was, this morning after Democracy oh, Now! at 9 o'clock. Oh, I didn't hear the rerun. I heard they it yesterday it live, and it was, it was A brilliant program, yeah. uh, actually, yes. Yeah. Um, so our listeners. We have, we have a lot to... Uh, to, Live up to. If, yes, right. If we're going to if we're going <laughs> to do better than they do, then uh, it's, it's tough. Um, so uh, today we have a uh, guest um, on our program. Um, it's Professor Robert Jensen of the University of Texas at Austin. Robert, are you there? Sure am. Uh, let's see if we get your level uh, correct, so everything is is, is fine. Uh, say say something else. Well, I'm down here at the University of Texas in Austin where it's hot. It's hot both in terms of weather and in political terms because of the dominance of the right wing in this state. So I hope I can survive both. Very good. Well, welcome to Left Out. Uh, so, Danny. So, yeah, so um, Robert is a, or actually I can call you Bob. I, I noticed you using the name Bob sometimes. Um, he's an outspoken book and critic of the way journalism is practiced in the U.S., uh, today, also U.S. foreign policy and a critic of the Bush administration. Uh, he's written a number of books. Um, we have links to his recent books on our website, uh, leftout.info, and uh, links to his homepage as well as links to many of his interviews and other writings. He's a prolific writer. Uh, he's appeared on um, in films such as Weapons of Mass Destruction, um, interviews in uh, main, major magazines like Counterpunch, and so on. So we have a couple of topics um, that I think uh, he could... Um, uh, help us uh, understand better, and uh, uh, maybe the first one we'll uh, get into is the uh, the Plame case. So, recently there's been all kinds of um, things in the air, uh, lots of bubbling um, kind of uh, things happening, and um, Judith Miller is going to jail. And um, but maybe we should. I, I don't know if we need to start with this quick summary of the of the yeah, Plame please. case. Yes, um, a couple of years ago, um, a diplomat named um, Joseph Wilson. Uh, uh, was asked by the CIA. Uh, actually, it's not clear who exactly asked him. No, the to vice do it, president's but, office, probably. Yeah, well, to to uh, look into claims that uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, getting um, uranium from um, Niger, and so he did that. He wrote a report saying basically it was completely false and that uh, there was no no truth at all to this this rumor. Um, president Bush then used this in his 2003 State of the Union address to bolster the case to attack Iraq. Uh, after which Joseph Wilson, and later later in 2003, wrote an op-ed article, um, basically just debunking the whole thing. And, in the New and York Times, what I didn't find in Niger. Very embarrassing called. to the Bush administration because this was something that was in the uh, in the State of the Union address. There's something that Bush should have known to be completely false. Um, subsequent to that, there was a, uh, a journalist, uh, Robert Novak, an op-ed art writer. Uh, uh, came out with an article critical of Wilson and included the, uh, the information that his wife was a CIA operative. In fact, uh, she was a, uh, a deep, what do they call it? Deep a cover agent deep working cover. on weapons of mass yes. destruction. And so they, by exposing her name, you know, her career was compromised or, or destroyed, actually, as a, as a, as a covert operative. Um, and so eventually a special prosecutor, Patrick J. Fitzgerald, was, was appointed to look into this because exposing the name of an agent, in fact, is a... Um, I don't know what crime it Federal is. Federal crime. Federal crime. So uh, subpoenas were issued, and this investigation has been going on for a couple of years now. Really, nobody knows what's been happening behind the scenes. But finally, uh, uh, a couple of journalists have been have been pressured into um, to revealing their their sources. Um, one was a, a Newsweek reporter, Matthew Cooper. Another was Judith Miller of the New York Times, who's famous 
infamous for a number of other reasons which we've talked about and left out. So maybe we can have Bob Jensen pick up the story from here. Mm. Yes, yeah, Bob. there's several ahead. crucial issues here. One is, of course, about the confidentiality of sources. Before we talk about that, though, I want to make a, a distinction between different kinds of confidential sources. Journalists rely on what are traditionally known as whistleblowers, that is, people usually from lower levels of government or corporate life who fear retribution if they tell the truth, but if promised anonymity will sometimes reveal information that's very important to the public good. It can expose corruption and misdealings of various kinds. And I think everyone understands that the use of whistleblower sources and the granting of an anonymity to them is crucial to journalism. The problem is there's another kind of anonymous source, especially in Washington, and that's the insider political operatives, the Karl Roves of the world, who use anonymity uh, to really uh, to do, do their dirty dealings, that is, to float trial balloons, to try and influence policy in ways that they're afraid to do in the open. Now, those kind of anonymous sources are largely understood to be destructive. They're not in the public interest. Uh, journalists use them because it's part of the insider game in D.C., but most of us out in the world would prefer they didn't. Now, they're all anonymous sources, and unfortunately, to protect the principle of journalists' right to keep anonymous sources confidential, uh, we now have Judith Miller in jail, uh, not to protect a classic whistleblower, but in fact to protect a classic political operative. And so for many reasons, I think we, a lot of us, even those of, uh, some of us within journalism, find this a very difficult case. As you pointed out, Judith Miller was also instrumental in hyping the Bush administration claims about weapons of mass destruction, all of course of which proved to be false. Uh, so there are many you know, strings we can pull on in this case. But the fundamental question is, in a democracy, do journalists have the right, especially in a democracy that has a First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution protecting free speech and press, do journalists have a right to refuse to testify in court when under subpoena, that is, when under a legal obligation to testify, can they refuse? There are very few categories of people in this culture that can refuse to testify. Uh, husbands and wives can refuse to testify against their spouses. Doctors can refuse to testify about confidential conversations with patients. Lawyers, ministers have a what we call a privilege. Um, should journalists have that privilege? That's never been fully resolved in this call. You mean, but you mean, of course, anyone can refuse to testify. It's really a question of whether yes. they can be punished for uh, for, refu for their refusal, right? Yes. Everybody, um, of course, can go to jail and, <clears throat> by refusing to testify. But should journalists, as an you know, as a professional category, be granted the right to refuse to testify under certain conditions, especially? when they're asked to reveal the identity of confidential sources. Right. So uh, I, so go ahead. Yes, go ahead. No, that's it. Go. Oh, I would like to, uh, yes, I'd like to probe this uh, both in the abstract as a, as a general principle and also in the concrete for the specific case. Uh, one thing that comes into the mix here is a distinction as to, well, whether any kind, uh, whether there's a, it's a, a civil affair or a criminal affair. So in this case, for example, uh, the underlying issue is that uh, a I would say by any measure, a major felony has been committed, which is that uh, an undercover CIA operative identity was exposed, uh, which uh, has, you know, enormous ramifications for the country and for the individuals involved. And I think we can we can safely agree to classify that as a serious crime. And it's being considered as such. So that's that's on the one hand you have. So you have sort of a counterbalancing situation here of, a, of this kind of crime having been committed, investigation into a crime. And how does that play into how does this play into the ethics of the situation as compared to let's say a civil matter or uh, or any yeah let's say a civil matter for example well let me actually like a, take like issue a libel with or the, a slander or let's yeah. say to make one extreme let me take issue with the idea that this is kind of a settled part of the law okay. there is the, the federal law we're talking about is called the Intelligence Identities Protection Act and it was passed in the aftermath of some revelations by left critics in the 1970s of CIA covert operations. So people ex expose the identity of, of secret agents, uh, covert agents that were engaged in some pretty nefarious dealings, as we know the CIA has been in its history. Mm -hmm. So do American citizens have the right to reveal the identities of an undercover agent? I actually think that's, a, that's an interesting question in and of itself. There is a federal statute, so we can go forward from there, but I'm not so sure I would ag agree with the law. It's another kind of complex part of this case. 
Uh, many on the left were opposed to that law because it limited the rights of citizens to to take action against what they thought were the you know, immoral well, that, and illegal okay, dealings of that, the actually, government. That, that is an interesting question, but how, how yeah. about if we set that one aside for a little That's bit later? That's what I think we should set okay, it aside. Let, let, let's just stipulate for the purpose of our discussion that a you know serious crime has been yeah. committed and really that the, the pressure on these journalists uh, stems from uh, stems from the prosecution or the, the attempt to prosecute the, this right. crime. So now let, let's, let's take it from there. Yeah. Well, here, although the Supreme Court has ruled there is no First Amendment protection for journalists to refuse to testify. Mm -hmm. In a case in the 1970s, the court made it clear it didn't think that the freedom of speech and press included implicitly this kind of privilege. There are about 30, 31 states in the District of Columbia, I think, that have what we call shield laws, which by statute create a limited protection. And that protection is not absolute. That is, journalists can refuse to testify in certain situations. But even most journalists agree that there are conditions under which it may be legitimate for the courts to demand that journalists testify. The conditions are basically that the information is vital to a criminal prosecution and that there, the information is not available in any other fashion. In this case, this may well meet such a test because, of course, the violation of the law in question is the confidential or the discussion with the journalist in the first place. So there would be no other way, in a sense, to verify the crime had been committed except by the journalist testifying as to the communication. So this is just one more way in which this case is very complex. Uh, still, uh, despite all of this, I think that Judith Miller's actions, her, her willingness to go to jail for this principle, is in many ways, uh, I think, very admirable. People have been saying that Judith Miller is putting herself above the law, but in a sense, that's the wrong way to characterize it. She's submitting to the law. She's willingly going to jail. She didn't skip the country, after all. She's saying, I understand there is a law, and the, the court has a legal right to ask me to do this, but I simply, on principle, will refuse. In that sense, it's been characterized as an act of civil disobedience, and in some ways, I think that's appropriate. So, uh, personally, when you set aside all the complications and the politics of this case, and my own particular antipathy for Judith Miller and her journalistic practices in other situations. I think she made the right call. I see. But, uh, but early in, in your, when you, uh, early, earlier you were drawing a distinction that was really based on the motives of the person who was uh, exposing, who was providing the information. So in this case, it's uh, extremely clear what's going on, right? This yeah. is a, was a thuggish act by the, uh, by the Bush administration, which is altogether characteristic of them. Um, and they were, using, uh, they were using Robert Novak, at least, and attempting to use other journalists. Actually, that brings me to a point, which is I, I, I'm pretty sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's not really clear, is it, what Judith Miller's involvement of all of this is? It's just the fact that she was probably called on the phone by the person in question? Is, uh, well, it uh, seems uh, quite clear Judith Miller was yeah. given the information. Right. Uh, she chose not to write about it. Right. So uh, that, okay, so that, actually, let me inter interrupt my own train of thought and okay. actually jump on that issue, which is, so... Uh, what, what journalistic privilege is she asserting? I mean, she didn't make any. She didn't make any publication. She didn't make any statement, right, of any well, kind. Well, she did not publish the information. But again, in other words, she's not one who's doing any heroic act of, you know, going to the press and trying to inform everyone, you know, uh, of something that we would otherwise well, not know she, about. But she came to those guys. They were talking to her as a journalist. That's true. They were not talking to her as a beer drinking buddy in a, or something. They were talking to her as a, yeah. well. We don't know that, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, Given that it's true to Miller. Just, yeah. but, but, Bob Jensen, uh, yeah. what is let, your, let, what is let your make, take on this issue? Let, yeah. Well, let, let me make it clear. Uh, I think when I said I would support Judith Miller's decision at this point, let me make it clear I think Judith Miller made a, a serious error in this process. That is, if I had been in her place, mm -hmm. easy to say now in hindsight, sure, but yeah. I think the fundamental mistake Judith Miller made in this particular incident was to give a promise of confidentiality in the first place. That is, if Karl Rove called me, which, by the way, he's never done, right. and offered me information on uh, the condition that I keep his identity secret, I would refuse. I would not engage in a conversation on that basis. In other words, I think Judith Miller made a fundamental error by allowing herself to be used that way. Again, that's the way the Washington game is played, and insider journalists like Judith Miller play it to the hilt. That's, I think, a serious problem. Now, that's a problem not just of Judith Miller's journalistic ethics. It's a problem of the entire profession. 
which has been co-opted by the political operatives in this way. But she made the promise, is my point, that that guarantee of confidentiality is then, I think, it's her obligation. So you would say the same. Hold it, except in extraordinary circumstances. So you would say the same about Woodward. Then uh, Woodward should not have guaranteed Felt's uh, anonymity back in the. No, uh, no. I think that's a very different case because mm. there you have a question of the possibility that those leaks could serve the public good. My point in the distinction I would offer is that in the the case we're talking about today, the the Valerie Plain case, it's highly unlikely there was a public good to be served here. It was clearly political payback. Uh. to try and punish Joe Wilson. I think the fundamental question that journalists should ask is if they are going to be true to their calling and true to their stated mission, the determining factor is will the public good be served by this? Listen, you know, people in D.C. float trial balloons, as I said, and, and get at, you know go after the, their enemies over and over again, but it's not clear that in most cases that has anything to do with the public good. Uh, if you're your talking point. about systematic abuses by government officials and leaks, even leaks in this case from highly placed officials like Mark Felt, who was, uh, you know, high in the FBI chain of command at that point. Even those can be determined to serve the public good, and in that sense, I think Woodward made the right call. So going back to your example then, I mean, it's it's the fact that it's Karl Rove. It's the fact that you have information about him that would lead you to assume that there's absolutely no public good can come out of anything that Karl Rove has to tell me, then you would a priori uh, refuse to grant any kind of anonymity. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think with Karl Rove, you certainly know there's a predisposition to be right. for him to manipulate reporters. Now, right. you know, I've been a journalist, and every journalist knows you can engage in a discussion with a source ah. to get some information clear before you make a promise of ah. confidentiality. Okay, this is, you see what in other words, if this. Okay, you were uh-huh. offering me confidential information, I could ask you about the nature of it. I could try to make some preliminary determination whether you've got real information for me or if, if you're just going after political opponents. Yeah, I see. But I, I think, you know, I don't I don't know. I haven't been a journalist, but I can imagine that that's a fairly fine line to walk, because rather than Carl calling you, he has Joe Schmo, who you've never heard of. And he tells you tantalizing things in this little uh, conversation about uh, that, that lead you to believe that there could be something really good here. And how do you make that judgment? I think it's uh, I think you're putting I think it, although I don't really want to be defending Judith Miller, I think in this case, you may be asking an awful lot uh you uh, may be asking an awful lot about uh, of a journalist to understand in advance what's uh, what's the deal here and what you well, do. Well, I think, again, out. in taking one, one specific incident, that's, your, your point is well taken. And that's why I indicated that I think for journalism to, to move forward on these kinds of questions, it has to collectively make a determination that this kind of abuse of anonymity by political insiders has to stop. That is, it's very hard for one, when, when the game is being played this way by everybody, it's very hard for one journalist to break out of it. Uh, I do think, you know, journalists are expected to make tough calls all the time, as are many professionals, and, and we have a right to hold them accountable. Yeah. But, but the, the problem, as is always the case, uh, is with the system, not necessarily with any one individual failure. So um, I was talking to a friend of mine just uh, who's was a journalist. He's no longer working in that profession. But um, he said that um, I asked him, well, is there a, a code of ethics or uh, in journalism such as what lawyers have with in terms of confidentiality, in terms of you're not allowed to take a case that somebody else in your law firm is taking the other side of that case. There's all kinds of ethical rules about lawyers. And um, that's when accountants have the same thing. When an accountant approves your, you know, your sure. books, that's a, that's a, it's an ethic. He's required under oath to, 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 to guarantee that, that, that he's tried to, you know, do it accurately. And, um, my friend said, well, there's nothing like that for journalism except that each newspaper will typically have its own code of ethics that you sign on to when you join the newspaper. There's a code, there's a book of, of ethical issues that apparently, and I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this until he told me that there's a book of ethical considerations that, that you get when you join the paper. Is that something That's you're familiar true, with? As a profession, journalists have no enforceable code of ethics. Lots of professional associations, for instance, the Society for Professional Journalists, has an, uh, an ethics code, mm-hmm. but it has no enforcement provision, obviously. I see. Because of the First Amendment protection of freedom of the press, there is no licensing procedure for journalists in this country, and I think that's appropriate. If there's no licensing procedure, there's no way to hold a profession accountable. We can hold lawyers accountable to the the Bar Association Code because 
lawyers are licensed by the state. Doctors are licensed. So when there is a licensing procedure, it's easy to enforce, not always easy to do it, but it's easy to create a code of ethics that can be enforced. But In journalism, we don't have that. So you're right. The only, in a sense, enforceable code of ethics comes at the level of the individual news outlet, which means not really a code of ethics, but it means that employers have the right to make decisions about disciplining or firing reporters who violate their own particular set of norms. That's not terribly useful that 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 particular kind of code isn't particularly useful at raising the level of ethical discourse in the profession because too often it's simply used as a weapon by employers to punish journalists they don't like. And, and, and also to, uh, to to push agendas that they do like. Uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, I you know we all we all grew up. I think uh, thinking of journalists as noble as a noble profession, but the reality is uh, there certainly are noblemen in the profession. But the reality is that uh, hardly anyone, I would say, uh, as a proportion of all the journalists in the world, really uh, give a damn about such niceties like uh, principle and so on. And in fact, are in it for the smear. Uh, I would well, even, actually, I, I would disagree with that. I, you know, I I know a lot of journalists. I've known a lot of journalists in my life, and. I see a lot of young people going into journalism, obviously, in my current employment. Right. And I would say that, that the vast majority of journalists, especially those who want to cover politics or public affairs more generally, go into it with a kind of noble spirit. That is, most of my students who are serious about doing political reporting want to do that reporting because they believe that's a way to contribute to the quality of democracy. Now, of course, in the, in the course of a career... Many people get jaded and cynical and, you know, respond to career pressures and such things. But my experience of journalists is that the failure is really not at the individual level. It's not that journalists per se are sleazy. It's that the industry in which they work puts constraints on them that make it very difficult to act in the sort of best spirit of the profession. And it does tend to beat people down over time. And when you add that to the career pressures that make it enticing to do certain kinds of stories, to be sensational, to go for the quick and easy scoop, well then, again, the problem is not so much the failure of individuals as it is a system that doesn't respond to the the best history of the profession. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily push people in the best way. So that brings us actually to Matthew Cooper, right? As we know, uh, both Judith Miller and Matthew Cooper came under pressure simultaneously to reveal their sources, and uh, Cooper's employer, Newsweek, uh, took an unusual position here. I wondered if you might comment on that. Uh, well, in, in this case, it was actually Time magazine. Oh, Time. I'm sorry. Uh, I got it backward. Yeah, which is, of course, part of a conglomerate, a huge multinational, and there were, you know, contentions that this was for the Time magazine executives, uh, including the, the chief editor who allegedly made the call, more of a business decision, more of limiting liability. So uh, Time magazine did turn over uh, before Matthew Cooper had to make his decision. Time agreed to turn over certain documents. These were email messages, for instance, that were on the Time computers. And uh, that was largely seen as purely, you know, a corporate decision. Matthew Cooper had to make a decision on his own about whether he was going to reveal a source, and as most listeners probably know, he made he was prepared to go to jail, but was, at least on his account, relieved of his promise of confidentiality by the source himself, and we know that source to be Karl Rove. Uh, there are questions about how that came about, uh, as there always perhaps will be, but there was a distinction there between the employer and the journalist, which did make a difference. Okay, uh, but the point I was making was kind of was just following up with yours, which is that well, you know, perhaps Matthew Cooper had the most noble, uh, noble uh, intentions, but uh, after all, he works for a big company, right. and the companies have their own uh, logic and their own uh, their own ethics uh, that has little to do with these principles. Absolutely, and and that was a, a common criticism of. of the paper or the magazine in this case. So um, just in terms of the pressure that it put, gets put on reporters, one famous story, and this is a bit tangential, but was uh, Gary Webb who um, exposed the um, the drug scandals, <clears throat> uh, the CIA involvement with the drug trade to get money for the Iran-Contra, uh, for, for the Contras. Remember that story? Oh, of course. Uh, yes, and so he... He exposed that in the uh, the the San Jose Mercury News, and then that 
all the other mainstream papers like criticized it as, as, as lousy, and then he had, they had to eventually retract the story. He wrote a book about it, which was full of even more, more evidence for the truth of what he was saying. Uh, eventually, the book uh, was completely vindicated by documents which were revealed later on. But ultimately, the story got no traction. He was driven out of journalism and eventually committed suicide. So there's an example of the career path of somebody who really was was uh, trying to do the right thing and, and following, you know, following the story Absolutely. to the end. Yeah, I think the Gary Webb story is, is very illustrative of the current state of journalism. I actually had a chance to meet Gary Webb. He spoke here at the University of Texas. <laughs> and uh, Gary Webb was in many ways, you know, Gary Webb didn't come into journalism as a, as necessarily a crusading lefty critic of the establishment. He was a very typical journalist in many ways, relatively apolitical, and he saw his role as going after people in power. He was fairly good at it. He had a number of, of successes in, in terms of exposing local corruption at papers he worked at in, in the Midwest and eventually made his way to the San Jose Mercury News, a very good regional paper, I might add. Uh, his exp- expose of the connections between the Contras in the 1980s in Nicaragua and drug trafficking revealed some new information and in some ways just verified information that had been published in the 1980s. It was a solid series. Uh, some argue it was a bit over-dramatized or, or hyped in some areas. Those are debates one can have. But Gary Webb himself, when I spoke to him and through the end of his life, always made the point that no one ever pointed out a specific fact that was an error, and no one ever asked for a retraction of any specific fact. I think the point is Gary Webb basically got the story right, and whatever flaws in the story, they were relatively minor. But as you point out, those in especially the more establishment press, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, really went after him. There are a lot of reasons for that, but it it shows the way in which journalism has largely capitulated into the conventional wisdom, that is, people who are within a certain kind of elite segment of opinion tend to prosper, and Gary Webb, who was outside of that, will often suffer the consequences. His suicide was was really tragic, although I continue to teach uh, some of Gary's writing in my introductory journalism class as an example of, I think, the better instincts of journalists. We're talking uh, to Professor Robert Jensen from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Professor Jensen is a uh, professor of journalism. Uh, We've been talking about uh, the Judith Miller case and the uh, journalistic ethic history surrounding uh, surrounding this case. Um, Listeners are welcome to call us if they'd like at uh, 621-412-621-9728 or to send mail to bob at leftout.info. So going back to uh, another angle on the Judith Miller case is we've been uh, talking about it somewhat in the abstract, but now I would also like to talk a little bit about it in the concrete, because truth be told, uh, you know, Judith Miller is is a deliberate and calculated mouthpiece for the Bush administration. Is she not? Well, I would expand it a bit. I don't necessarily think she's a mouthpiece for the Bush administration. Judith Miller is a very savvy reporter who has who has built a very successful career by knowing how to cozy up to people in power. And that's not just the Bush administration. Her career goes way back. She perfected this skill in both Democratic and Republican administrations alike. She's made a special niche for herself by being uh, a kind of hysterical reporter about weapons of mass destruction. And in this case, her own interests, her own careerist interests, and her own ideological blinders happen to coincide with the objectives of the Bush administration in their propaganda drive to whip up support for the invasion of Iraq. So here's a a, a reporter who's basically made a career by playing up to insiders and, in fact, eventually becoming an insider herself. And and that just means she's particularly open to manipulation. And whatever one thinks about the Bush administration's politics, one has to at least acknowledge they are masters of media manipulation. And in this case, it was particularly easy. Yeah, well, I, I think, well, I, I, you and I may draw different conclusions from from what we know uh, uh, from different perspective about this case, but uh, it seems to me that she was really uh, channeling exactly the information that she was being fed by 
most likely people in Rumsfeld's office, the Office of Special Plans, through Ahmad Chalabi, as in a deliberate and calculated effort to promote the war in Iraq. I mean, Judith yeah, Miller my- has connections with the Middle East Forum, has connections with Laurie Myroli, and also with the uh, uh, Eliana Benador Associates, which was there to promote the neoconservative perspective. I mean, to me, this person is is the antithesis of a of an ethical journalist. Well, I agree. I think her career uh, is hardly one I would hold up as a model. My point was simply that while there are differences between different factions of the uh, the elite in the United States over Middle East policy, that if I, I would argue if there had been a democratic administration in power and it had decided to go to war against Iraq, that Judith Miller and others like her would have been promoting it with equal fervor. That is to say, we can always see differences between various segments of the people who run this country or any country, but I think we shouldn't allow that to obscure the similarities. U.S. policy in the Middle East, for instance, is remarkably similar across Democratic and and Republican administrations alike. Mm -hmm. There are differences, there are changes, but it's also true there's a consistency to it. Yeah, well, that's why I was nodding when you said, well, had it been the Democrats, uh, I think you're right. I mean, had it been the Democrats, because the uh, the issue is the policy here. And yeah. I think that Judith Miller was very, uh, very skilled at promoting that policy. But uh, my point is that is that now she's sort of, I mean, I think this is like, uh, this is the best thing that's happened to her in years, because now <laughs> that career, she, yeah, for her career, because now she, I mean, she's she Mother Teresa, uh, right. she's Mother Teresa yeah. for Standing Second Street. Of the press and all I mean, that. she, she's exactly, I mean, she's the noble, the noble hero, and you read the New York Times, you know, editorial about her, or you read the letters to the editor that they choose to publish, are all, are all, you know, telling us how wonderful Judith Miller is. She's scraping that's off of despicable. that debris from the other stuff, polishing her, that's her image. Absolutely despicable. That, well, all right, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, actually, that's an important point, because although the mainstream press tends to be very protective of its own, Judith Miller's journalistic sins during the run-up to the Iraq were, were so extreme and so outrageous, as you were pointing out, that even within mainstream journalism, she was starting to, to attract criticism. Uh, one of the major journalistic trade magazines, in fact, ran a lengthy story after the Iraq War, pointing out the criticisms of Judith Miller and documenting them quite adequately. Oh, editor and publisher. So Judith Miller was not Michael only Manning, under attack. Michael Manning, Michael Manning and the editor, well, no, editor and publisher, right? Well, the editor and publisher did it. The uh, American Journalism Review had a quite mm-hmm. actually quite a good story. So uh, Judith Miller was under attack from the anti-war movement from the left. Uh, that's to be expected, and, and that was an attack that I thought was well-documented. But it was interesting that, that her she crossed a line, in a sense, that was so egregious and in such egregious fashion that even her more mainstream uh, contemporaries found, found it object, objectionable. And as you point out, this is going to be a kind of cleansing ritual for her that will put her back in the good graces of the field. And that's unfortunate because I think her case provided one of the most clear examples of how this decision to play the insider game in Washington really does corrupt journalism. A lot of journalists who do very good work will tell you that the real choice journalists make is whether to work from the outside or work the inside. And once you make that decision to accept the rules of the insider game, my own opinion is that there's not much good work you can do. Uh, again, that's a system problem, not just an individual failure, but a problem with the way journalism works, especially in Washington today. Yeah, the biggest problem is that uh, then you're just ceding to uh, the people in government, for example, to frame all of the questions, to decide exactly, you know, what is the overall framework, what sort of questions are askable. It's, uh, I, think it's, I think the failures of journalism are really the largest threat to our democracy in the United States today. Well, you know, there's a few other things. You know, fundamentalist Christianity, American exceptionalism, <laughs> you know, a collapsing economy. There's a whole lot of stuff to worry about these days. Uh, I guess maybe reflexively as a former journalist, I don't want to dump all of it on journalism. But I think you're, you're correct. We, we live with kind of a paradox in this country at the moment. We have uh, on the surface a very free press in terms of legal guarantees of freedom of expression and freedom of press. The United States ranks very high in the world. You could even make an argument in some ways it has the best system of protecting the press. Uh, as long and, as you don't have to I, eat. At, at the same time, 
we have one of the most debased political dialogues you can imagine. That is, political discourse in this country, which is very much dependent on the mass media, has reached uh, really incredible lows. That's a paradox. How can we have a free press and such a degraded political culture? Well, the answer, of course, has a lot to do with the nature of corporate commercial media, the dominance of that system and the, the complete poverty of public media, of citizen media, of, of well-funded media that can contest that. So uh, I, I would agree that the heart of the problem these days is very much wrapped up in journalism. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, something we've commented on uh, very often here on Left Out, as you might expect, since we're trying to be a voice uh, from the other side of the uh, little people who aren't doing this for a living and can who affect uh, relatively few, but uh, doing our best. Uh, listeners are welcome to call us. We're talking to Professor Robert Jensen, Professor of Journalism at University of Texas at Austin. Uh, the telephone number here is 412-621-9728, or you can send mail to bob at leftout.info. So, uh uh, Robert Jensen, I have a uh, another topic that we would like to bring up with you, which is uh, 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 you, I know that you have an interest in, which is the Students for Academic Freedom and the so-called Academic Bill of Rights, which is being promoted around the country by uh, David Horowitz is, uh, behind this organization. I wonder if you might perhaps summarize a little bit for us uh, what is going on with that, and then we could uh, discuss it a bit. Sure. Well, I think it's interesting that in a culture that is so dominated by conservative and in some sense even reactionary forces. You know, we have a, know. a, a an executive, legislative, and judicial branch now that are completely dominated by conservative. It's funny that at that precise moment we have a kind of hysterical ratcheting up of the critique of the liberal media and the liberal university. And I think that's in some ways hard to understand. Uh, if you have a system that's firmly in the control of very reactionary forces, any institution that at least creates the possibility of independent and critical inquiry, and even though both the universities and the media are very centrist and, and corporate in this sense, they do create the possibilities for critique, that in that kind of climate, these reactionary forces are going to try and shut down these institutions. And so you see an attack on the media, the so-called liberal media, you see an attack on the independence of universities. Now, one of the ways that's going forward is the contention that because universities are run by liberals, that conservative students are somehow being uh, ill-served, that liberal dogma is dominating, and hence we have what is being called the Student Bill of Rights, which of course has nothing to do with student rights at all. It has to do with a political campaign to try and frighten universities into being quiet in, on matters of political and social inquiry. So I was looking at uh, one of your um, little essays on your website. Uh, you were uh, sort of, uh, I think it's a teaching philosophy or, or kind of a response you wrote to people. Mm -hmm. It's a teaching statement uh, because uh, people apparently have been critical of you for using, um, espousing views in your classroom or explaining how you think about things in your classroom, which inevitably results in strong opinions being expressed. And that somehow uh, this is wrong, and that you, you you wrote a response to that. Can you comment on that? Yes, I you know I'm I'm a political leftist. I'm I, in in the terminology of the American political spectrum, I'm a radical, and I teach in a very conservative state, the University of Texas. While the Austin campus is known as kind of a liberal oasis in the state, it's still a very centrist to right-leaning campus in a very you know right-leaning country. And I try to raise issues in my classes that I think are of great importance to contemporary journalism, issues of race, issues of uh, war and peace, the way in which journalism covers these kind of things. Now, not surprisingly, just raising these issues in a critical fashion, that is just suggesting that, for instance, white America should think about race, can often spark anger on the part of students, on the part of administrators, donors, all sorts of people. So I've been under attack in many ways for many years. Uh, you know, my point of view is that in a healthy system, you will have professors, just as you would have journalists, who come from a variety of political perspectives, and you would want people to raise these kinds of critical questions. Uh, I think the, the claim that either journalists or professors should be neutral 
is really a, a roundabout way of saying that they should shut up. They should not raise critical yeah. questions. I think the question isn't, do you raise these issues? You should raise them. The question is, when you do raise them, do you try to create a healthy atmosphere for dialogue? And can you defend the claims you make? I mean, you know, we, we expect scientists, for instance, not to be neutral on the question of whether the Earth is round or flat. We expect them to put forward ideas which can be defended, you know, with data and theories that are, are logical. And I think that's the criteria on which we should judge people. Unfortunately, in the humanities and the social sciences, this often has little to do with evidence or, or logic. It has mostly to do with politics. So, um, yeah, the um, well, I was thinking of something. Now I forgot what I was going to ask you about. During well, I was that. going to ask is what specifically is Horowitz uh, trying to promote? What sort of thing does he want uh, people to do at universities? Well, David Horowitz, I don't consider to be a very deep thinker, but he is often quite clever. And because he knows there is a, a deep-seated respect for academic freedom, or at least we hope there is, instead of arguing that people who teach, such as myself, with left views should be fired or hounded out of the system, he's taking a very different tact, which is to argue that it's the poor, bedraggled, conservative students who are under assault. And so this Student Bill of Rights is asserting... Uh, the right for students to be able to raise critical questions, to challenge professors, all of which I agree with. The problem is it's applied very selectively. There are problems of political dogmatism in the American university. I would be the first to admit it. Unfortunately, the problems aren't where David Horowitz is pointing, that is, to liberal or leftist professors. The most dogmatic department on any college campus that I've ever been involved in is the business, business school. school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. But I, knew, I could see that one school, coming like a Mack truck. <laughs> yeah, well, but think about it for a second. What do they teach in the business school? They business. Teach an unchallenged curriculum of corporate capitalism. Exactly, now, yes. that's about the most ideologically dogmatic curriculum you can imagine in the world. Yet David Horowitz is not asking the question, are there enough socialist business professors? He's not asking the question, are business courses on management being taught from a labor union perspective. No, because that's part of the conventional wisdom that's beyond challenge. So the whole thing is just a political game. It's easy to knock down. It's easy to make fun of. It's easy to, to counter. The problem is, in an ideologically very rigid society like this, uh, unfortunately, David Horowitz can get traction. And not just on, and it's important to note, not just with the reactionary right. David Horowitz is used as a source on mainstream television programs. He's taken seriously as a political commentator. It tells you something about, again, not only how degraded the political discourse in this country is, but also how far to the right politics in the United States has been pushed over the last three or four decades. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the, I would say, you know, for a lot of the mainstream media, it doesn't matter the substance of what you're saying, as long as it sort of coheres with conventional wisdom. You know, George Bush is a saint, and the United States is always right, and uh, terrorists hate freedom, and so on. Then you can get on television. You can be like, you can be a big star. Uh, with respect to this, I want to mention to our left-out listeners that, uh, you know, this discussion about David Horowitz and the Academic Bill of Rights is uh, uh, not uh, purely uh, just a matter of uh, intellectual interest, but in fact, is, a, is of current political interest in the state because uh, Representative uh, Gib uh, Armstrong, from a Republican uh, uh, state uh, legislator from uh, Lancaster County, uh, eastern Pennsylvania, has uh, uh, proposed House Resolution 177, sponsoring House Resolution 177, which was charges the House Education Subcommittee on Higher Education to hold hearings to investigate the possibility that uh, some faculty members in state schools have used college class time for partisan political messages, and in his words, he wants to make sure that students are getting the education they paid for, not unsolicited political indoctrination. So right. So it's a very current thing. This is just uh, about a week old that, that this was discussion was taking place in the Pennsylvania um, state and legislature. I could easily imagine similar things are going on in Texas if they haven't already. Yeah, there's currently no legislation proposed, but this model legislation that Horowitz's group has drawn up is being used. And I would I would second your comment that this is not simply a, a discussion of interest to academics, to professors. Quite frankly, if it was concern of concern only to professors, I wouldn't care about it. I don't care much about professors. I find them to be pound for pound the whiniest group of people oh, I've ever you. worked with. Thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, this not all. There are exceptions. I I hope, but um, you know, professors' personal interests, much like journalists' personal interests 
are not really the question. The question is, what does the institution do in society? That What is the role of an independent university or an independent press in society? That's worth fighting for. Not the parochial interests of the people who hold these jobs, but the principles and the notion of a truly independent and critical discourse. Because without that, of course, you can have democracy in form, but it will be meaningless because there'll be no vehicle for meaningful dialogue. And I think most people listening would probably agree that dialogue is already you know terribly impoverished and if it dies completely then i think you know we're on the way not to fascism in some technical sense but into a a capitalist democracy in which we have freedom but it's in a sense irrelevant well it's very very nicely put one of the things that you said in that essay about your teaching statement uh the very beginning it says uh uh, sometimes uh, a student uh, starts uh, uh, raises his hand and says something. He says, "In my opinion, um, blah blah blah." And then you stop him right there and you ask him, "Well, why are you stating that? That it's your opinion?" I mean, because that immediately weakens the statement and makes it suspect. He's acknowledging that he doesn't have data behind it to actually argue the, the statement, and you you, right. you point out that that's not how you really should express yourself. Uh, Maybe I'm mis- mis- misstating your... No, 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 your... I think you're right. And, and that goes to a larger problem, I think, in the culture, which is uh, skills of, of logic, of reason, of argumentation, I think have atrophied tremendously in this culture. You know, we've, we've come to this sort of nice, happy, touchy-feely culture in which everybody has an opinion and all opinions are equally valid. Ah, yes. it's, yeah, it's sort of right. the ultimate therapeutic culture in which I have to validate your opinion. Well, quite frankly, if I think your opinion is ill-formed, based on incorrect facts, illogical, I feel no reason to validate it. I feel a need to challenge it. And what I see in young people, and, and I want to make it clear, I'm not one of those sort of crotchety old professors who's constantly bashing young people. I, I'm constantly, you know, refreshed by my interaction with young people. But I do see systematically uh, a sort of degradation of the skill to make a good argument. And this idea that we all have opinions and no opinion can really be challenged I think undermines the basis, again, for a healthy political culture. Argumentation and debate is about putting forward propositions that you can defend, not propositions that you simply feel about. I'm not interested in students' feelings in that sense. I'm interested in what they can can demonstrate. Uh, So we have a caller, uh, Bob, on the north side, calling for Professor Robert Jensen of University of Texas at Austin. Go ahead, caller. Uh, Thank you. Um, I guess my question is why the, the left in this country doesn't, take a page from the George Galloway book of approaching the media. In other words, he's called on the carpet, he comes over here and basically lays waste to everybody. He's erudite, he's offensive in the sense of not being defensive, and um, he, he shut everybody up and you haven't heard anything from him since uh, about his so-called relationship with Iraq. I, I find that to be a lesson um, that we should be following here and nobody seems to be doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Robert? I'm sorry, because of the technology, I wasn't able to hear the oh, call. Well, have to I can, uh, I can summarize the, the point he made. Uh, there was a guy named George Galloway who came um, before the Senate a committee. Uh, uh, call, he was called by Norm Coleman to, to explain his involvement with a um, oil for food program, the claiming that Galloway right. had actually uh, been somehow involved, profiting from, um, from Iraq. And Galloway came over and just... Ripped him a new one. Ripped, ripped these people to shreds and made a very powerful statement. You probably heard it. So the caller, yeah. the caller was asking why are American journalists not uh, behaving more like George Galloway, who you know actually called them on their nonsense and told them that they were liars and enumerated all of their errors and demanded accountability. Yeah, why not? <laughs> well, I, yeah, George Galloway's performance in front of that Senate was magnificent, electrifying. <laughs> and there, I think there are several things to learn from that. One is that. The political culture of Europe is quite different than the United States. There's a, a history and a respect for often not only spirited, but sometimes quite uh, mean-spirited debate, but toward an end, and the end, I think, is, is trying to get at the truth. And I think that political culture in Europe is, is quite different, and from my point of view, we should be trying to emulate that, that style. The other thing, of course, is that journalism in the United States, as we pointed out, is, is captured by, I think, two major forces. Uh, one is the, the ideology of the United States, in which this, what is often called American exceptionalism, the United States as being sort of a, a, a nation touched by God to bring freedom to the world, 
is part of not only the political culture, but it's part of the journalistic culture. I mean, you know, I always say that the most important thing to realize about American journalists is that they are Americans, and they're trapped within that as a, as a, as a class of people. The other thing, of course, is the demands placed on them by this corporate commercial system, which limit some of the freedom of mobility. A lot of journalists would like to do better work, I think, but feel constrained. Uh, why is that? It's a long story. It has a lot to do with purely with the profit motive. But you put this system together, and what you get, especially in the post-9-11 era, and remember that the timidity of journalism was exacerbated by the, the cultural reaction to 9-11, I think. Yeah. And again, the propaganda skill of the Bush administration. Put all of that into the blender, and what you get is a press that seems almost constitutionally unable to challenge at the basic level. Yeah. Uh, the, the, what are, I think we might agree, fundamental distortions and lies of this particular administration. So I think, but there has been a, a grassroots response to that. For example, the whole um, media reform movement from freepress.org, uh, free the... Um, Robert McChesney's organization and the, the media reform conventions that they've had. They've drawn thousands of people. This is just a whole new organization that didn't exist before because, uh, or at least I wasn't aware of any such movement before, but people are starting to see that when they turn on the TV that what they're seeing is such, it's just not doing it. It's not doing what it needs to do, and, and they're getting upset about it. Another example is the, the growth of, for example, Democracy Now!, which now has... 350 stations around the country, including WRCT, which is our station. Um, and that's been, since I got involved with it, it's, it's, you know, double the number of stations that they've had. Uh, so, I mean, I think one hope is that we're, we're that these movements are going to start creating an alternative media and also to put pressure on the mainstream media to somehow deal with some of these things. Uh, I agree completely, and that's where the hope is. You know, journalism as an institution... Uh, exists in a wider political culture, and when people, grassroots activists, as you point out, feel fed up with the, the content of contemporary journalism and start creating alternatives and supporting alternatives, that's going to have an effect. And I think all of the, the examples you listed, both the direct political movement to affect the structure and content of media, as well as the creation of alternative or independent journalistic outlets and the support for them, will put pressure on the mainstream media. And that's, you know, I think a very hopeful, in fact, probably one of the most hopeful political movements in recent times. Uh, as you point out, the Free Press is one, in, one organization that's, that's been at the forefront of this. Robert McChesney's excuse me, criticism of the media, his books have been, I think, very important. Uh, but it goes far beyond that particular group, of course, and, and right. goes to very deep levels. Uh, People talk not only about the media reform movement, but the media justice movement. That is a movement that's not only concerned with reforming the media, but fundamentally changing the nature. Again, it's important to recognize okay. we, that kind of change is not going to happen in a vacuum. It's going to be part, if it does come, of a broader progressive political movement that is going to go to the, the core, I think, of American economic and foreign policy questions. All right. On that note, thank you, Professor Jensen, for calling in. We've been listening to Left Out, reality-based radio and WRCT. Today's program was produced by Jay Thurber. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you all for listening.